Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This last season of 2021 will be focused on controlled environment ag and is sponsored by one of the leaders in the industry, Plenty. Plenty is an indoor vertical farming company that uses less space and fewer resources to grow flavorful, healthy, fresh, and clean produce year-round. Plenty's mission is to improve the lives of plant, people, and our planet. Regulars of the podcast know I love talking to Nate Story, CSO and co-founder of Plenty. We have had several conversations in the past, episode 23 with Scott Komar on Plenty's relationship with Driscoll's and episode 30 on food safety. I wanted him to kick off this season to give a good snapshot of vertical farming now. Whether you are a practitioner or know nothing about vertical farming, you will learn something from our discussion. We cover the advantages and challenges of indoor farming. We talk about the origin of Plenty's proprietary towers and intelligent platform that allow it to grow multiple crops with consistent flavors and yield. Near the end of the conversation, I asked Nate about breeding, one of my favorite topics, uh, for indoor farms. I challenge any breeding companies to get back to me with a different point of view. I'll do an episode on it if we get some feedback. Let's drop into my conversation with Nate. This episode is the start of my season on controlled environment ag. So for those who might not be familiar, can you explain a little bit what CEA is and what Plenty does and a little bit about yourself, Nate? Yeah, so CEA is controlled environment ag. And historically, this has been uh, mostly in reference to greenhouses. So greenhouses basically took uh, field conditions and said, hey, how do we control more, control more, control more? And you end up in these buildings um, you know, where they're much more controlled in the field. Uh, a lot of time they're growing things like tomatoes, tropical fruit, you know, in, in the Netherlands places, mm-hmm. definitely not the tropics. And, um, you know, in the last couple of decades, we've really kind of taken this idea of control a little bit further, right? So greenhouses are a mature industry. This is like the mature CEA industry. And what's, what's happened is the indoor farmers have kind of come along and have built upon, uh, this CEA concept and said, what happens when we have more and more and more control over the environment. Well, the outcome is you get more and more and more yield, you get more and more and more quality. So um, today CEA kind of encompasses both greenhouses and indoor farming, but you know, uh, my world is almost entirely indoor, indoor farming. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so wh- who is Plenty and how long has the company been around and, and what do you all do? Yeah, so Plenty is um, is an indoor farming company. So we grow entirely under artificial light. 
So the greenhouse, you know, they get uh, some natural light and then they've got a lot of supplementary kind of artificial light. We grow entirely under artificial light. So we control the intensity, the spectrum, all of the conditions in the farm. And, you know, the one uh, kind of unique thing about Plenty is we have a pretty unique architecture. So we've gone out and we've taken the stacked beds or this the horizontal flat surfaces of the greenhouse. We flipped them on their side, uh, put them back to back and increased the amount of uh, growing space that we can pack into a square meter of floor plan. So, um, you know, we've kind of gone out and figured out how to condense all of this production into a teeny tiny space, control that space really, really closely, um, and to produce an incredible amount of product uh, out of a relatively small, small volume. Yeah, we'll talk more about um, how you grow in a minute because um, that's very unique to, to Plenty as opposed to some of the other companies. But um, how does Plenty improve food security, safety, and availability? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there, there's a lot of different lenses to, to answer that question through, you know, at a very local or consumer level. Um, you know, our food today travels very long distances and it's reliant on things like a cold chain, both for supply and for safety. Um, it depends on fields that are under pressure, right? Environmental pressure, you know, smoke, drought, you name it. Uh, you know, it's getting harder to grow. It's getting harder and harder to grow every, every year. And that's not going to change, right? And so at the consumer level, you know, we can think about it as, as um, you know, a guaranteed supply uh, that you know is safe. It's produced the exact same way at the exact same place every single time. You maybe like come up a level from the consumer level to the supplier level. And uh, you start to think about, well, what, what can indoor farming be to a mature industry, right? A mature industry that's growing uh, at maximum capacity. There's not a whole lot of land left to go out and get, and yet demand is growing, right? So how do we grow our agricultural capacity as producers in order to meet the demands of consumers? And how to do, do that in a way that's predictable, that's safe, um, that allows us to, to scale, right? Something that has historically kind of hit the limits of, of scale. And if we zoom out maybe one more level and we say globally, uh, what does it mean? Uh, you know, I think uh, we tend to think about whether uh, a shelf is bare in the local supermarket as kind of a local issue, but these are symptoms of a global problem, right? Shipping is disrupted. It's harder and harder to move things reliably around the world. COVID was a great example of that. We're dealing with like the post-COVID uh, stimulus, you know, ramping up demand before supply can match. And uh, we, we couple that with all of kind of the craziness of the environmental uh, pressures on the field globally. And we have a food security issue on our hands. And so uh, we can view CEA or indoor farming also through this global lens of saying, hey, listen, uh, we're kind of a new form of real estate. If, if you want to think of it that way, we're a new way to grow the global capacity to produce without actually going out and really converting more land over, right? Or finding water or finding a place that's sheltered from the, the, uh, the elements. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was listening to a podcast this morning, really talking about the scope and the the hugeness of our supply 
chain issue and how this whole idea that, you know, you and I have kind of grown up in business with just in time where, you know, something comes from China and it's ready and you don't have any backup and, and all the problems we're having in our supply chain right now that are going to continue. And That's so right. it, it, when you think about it, you think about, okay, that, that comes down to our food and you're, you're suggesting, let's just grow this in a whole different way so that it's close by and people can get it where they are. And it's, there's no shipping containers and fewer trucks. And, and that just makes a lot more sense of having food available to people. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I, I think that the answer too is, you know, like where, where are we going to do it otherwise? Right. Um, you know, (laughs) where are we going to do it otherwise? All the land that we can use is currently being used, uh, for this type of production. And, uh, we just, we have to be honest about that. I, I mean, I think everyone in ag kind of knows that folks outside of ag don't understand that. Right. They're like, there are fields right next to my house, right. <laughs> in in uh, up, you know, upstate New York or whatever. And you're like, yeah, but, but just space does not a profitable field make. Right. And so walking people through the fundamentals of the industry and helping them understand what needs to be true in order to actually grow and make money and have reliable production year on year, that is a very, very different problem. That's more of like a cultural educational problem, right? Uh, people don't, understand the threat that the field is under. They don't understand what farmers have to deal with these days because they have this very um, abstract, romantic um, idea of, of what production and farming looks like. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think with so many things changing right now with climate change and the water issues that we're having, especially here in California. And so you have to think about the the forces on us and then supply chain, like we were saying, that things are changing. The forces on us are different. And so we have to respond in a different way and grow in a different way. And it doesn't mean outdoor growing is going away. But it, how are we going to make sure that people have the food that they need when they need it that's healthy and safe? And so this is you know, an avenue to go down for sure. So yeah, you've talked right. about um, all the, the good things about it. Tell us some of the challenges of, of indoor growing. And, and as, as vertical farms become more a part of the food that we eat, um, th- there's certainly things that people say, like you use too much energy and, and you know, there's a lot of complaints about it. What are the challenges and how are, how's the industry um, coping with, with solving those problems? Yeah, um, that's a great question. There are a lot of challenges. I mean, it's a nascent industry, right? And it's, it, it's an industry with a lot of technology inputs. And that's both a challenge um, as well as, as an opportunity. Um, on the challenge side, you know, integrating all of these different uh, technology inputs into the business, making it all work together, uh, that's really hard to do. You need a lot of engineers, you need a lot of plant scientists, you need a lot of folks that really know their business, right? To, to, to do this integration work, um, to take that integration and spin it into something even bigger, right? To, to, to basically become your own technology cost curve takes even more work, uh, but that's what's necessary to make this industry grow, go, right? So a lot of folks will look at indoor ag and um, you know this is, this is at the heart of the issue because people look at indoor ag and be like, it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, not necessarily. You have to know what too expensive means, right? If you're saying it's too expensive in comparison to the field, then yeah, that, that's a comparison that, um, you know, without understanding the industry, uh, people look at it and be like, yeah, it makes no sense. I can go buy, you know, an acre of land in Salinas for, you know, $70,000, <laughs> whatever the outrageous, uh, you know, per acre price for prime farmland is now. Um, 
you know, I, I can go buy that land for $70,000. We're talking like tens of millions of dollars to build a farm. And what, what people don't realize is what you're buying is a pretty massive amount of capacity. So like if we did an acreage to acreage comparison, um, you know, we're, we're, we're matching the field in terms of the amount of profit that can be generated per dollar of input, right? Um, I think the other thing to understand is, uh, you know, that technology integration work really, really hard, but it unlocks improvement at a rate that's unprecedented in agriculture, right? So uh, I'm talking about the opportunity, but that comes at a cost, right? That, that is hard work to do. And plenty today, you know, we've spent a lot of money on that R&D work to build that cost curve. And uh, what it's doing is it's steadily year on year driving cost out of the system at a rate that uh, if you're a field producer is, is unimaginable, right? Because we don't have cost curves in ag. We don't, we, we don't get the pleasure of cost curves. Facebook does, Google does, Tesla does, other tech industries do. Uh, but in agriculture, we haven't uh, gotten to enjoy those very often. So what we're doing here is we're building our own cost curves. So, um, you know, that is hard. That is, that is hard work. Getting the markets to understand this, right? Like we are not a snapshot. We are a trend line as a mm -hmm. business. The entire industry is not a snapshot. It is a trend line. And you know, it's like, a bunch of naysayers today will say like, well, it's still too expensive. It's still too hard. It's still all these things. And you're like, well, it was three times as expensive two years ago. And it was twice as hard. And we've cut our costs by, you know, 60%, right? And we're going to chop it by another 60% over the next two years. And another 60% over the year. And you can like follow that line out and you realize, holy smokes, this goes to a completely different place uh, than where we're at today. So, um, you know, getting the capital markets to understand this because this is, like any agri other agricultural, you know, asset intensive uh, industry, a capex intensive one, and um, getting, I think, consumer acceptance has been uh, pretty, pretty easy, pretty rosy. Uh, people are excited about the the, the uh, idea of clean food, um, but you know, it's really just kind of waking up the capital markets, helping them understand the problem, and then helping. Uh, helping just culturally people understand why we have a problem in the first place. Right. And mm -hmm. all of that is, uh, is a challenge. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, you, you compare it to ag markets, but ag, ag market, I mean, a lot of the ag markets, you don't have the type of fast change and new technology and driving that, that cost curve down like that. That doesn't happen in outdoor growing. That's right. And so you're, you're both an, you're both a food ag company and a tech company. And so you're, you know, and trying to talk to investors and trying to talk to the market about, you know, we are driving costs out and, and this is continuous improvement because we're learning more and more. And we're also an ag company, you know, so I'm sure that those conversations are, are kind of confounding sometimes. Yeah, they're, they're hard, you know, and food and ag haven't historically gone together. Even like a lot of the modern food companies are not really tech companies, right? So you look at, um, you know, and they may have like some tech technology element. There may be some like, you know, uh, gen genetic technology, right? Some type of modification to produce heme and soybeans or what have you, right? But they tend to be like these linchpin uh, elements of, of the system of the business. Right. And, uh, when you look at like the plenty tech stack, you know, we have, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of patent families across dozens of different technology, technology input areas. Right. And so, um, you just have to walk a very fine line and it's very hard to balance the very like traditional incremental, uh, approach to producing safe, healthy food with the 
you know, go hand over fist as quickly as you can, you know, um, build, build, build faster, faster, faster. So, uh, those are not always complementary, you know, ways of thinking about the world. Um, so that's, that's a tough, tough line to walk and it's a tough tension to manage. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting about the type of work that you guys do is because of your control of the environment, you're really able to look at um, some improvements that are harder to do outside. And so when you look at all the changes that you're making and all the technology that you're using and thinking about, okay, can we use different light to get higher nutrition profiles? And can we use a different way of growing to get better flavor? And so I think you're able, you know, what, what's coming along with all this is, is kind of different food too. I mean, great, highly nutritious, wonderful food, but it's giving people different options, um, which is really exciting as well. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we have the the opportunity. Um, we have the opportunity to kick kick open the doors to new flavors and new experiences that people don't usually get, right? And I think that that's really exciting. Like we can talk all day about what it looks to just like scale the field endlessly, right, through indoor ag. And I think that that's exciting, right, from like a traditional agronomist viewpoint. You know, scaling the field endlessly is exciting. It unlocks you know, incredible things that haven't been unlocked for a very long time for humanity. You know, like you think about going from hunter gatherers to the first like agricultural societies, like that was a step function leap forward. Right. Mm -hmm. Then we think about, you know, like the Haber Bosch process or kind of Borlaug's shuttle breeding or like these different points in time where humanity kind of just like jumped forward on the agricultural production scale. Uh, and, um, you know, those are very exciting in and of themselves. I do think that you know, we're looking at one of the first times here where we have not just the opportunity to leap forward on the scale, uh, on, on the matter of scale, but also to leap, leap forward in terms of quality, right? And experience and being able to do some really weird stuff that people wouldn't otherwise get outside of uh, their grandma's garden plot, right? Um, outside of these very like niche production, if you want to think about it as like a niche production facility, like your garden plot is a niche production facility. You're producing hand-selected cultivars, you know, hand-selected varieties uh, for your personal consumption in ways that a field producer just couldn't do it. Right. right? It's just not even, it's not possible. Greenhouse grower can't do it. And, um, and that results in product that tastes different. You know, people enjoy it very differently. They consume it differently. And, you know, I think indoor ag has an opportunity to come along and access some of the joy that comes from those niche production facilities or plots or whatever you want to call them and, uh, and, and make it widely available. Right. And I think in an urbanized world, in a world where most people live in cities and, um, you know, they don't, they don't get to eat that kind of food very often. That's also a pretty exciting thing. Yeah. So for people who haven't really been inside and thought about how does a vertical farm work, can you take us through to high level operationally, like, kind of from seed to packing in the truck to go to the retail? Like what is, does it all happen there or does it, you know, how are things moving around inside of your production facility? Yeah. I mean, it all happens in the facility. There are no weird processes, right? There are no processes <laughs> that are <laughs> unfamiliar to anyone in production. Um, you know, we bring seed in, it's all um, ordered by lot and uh, we scan it in. Uh, we do checks for, um, you know, to see what, what our vigor is. We check for disease pathogens, that kind of thing. It passes, it goes in, we plant it by lot. We, we keep track of each lot 
each tray that each lot goes into, um, or you use robotics for planting. Yeah, we do. So all, all the planting's all automated. Um, you know, like the Compton farm is an example, almost all of the process is automated, uh, in Compton. And, um, you know, I think that's another interesting thing about indoor ag, right? Like it is easier to automate some processes than in the field. Mm-hmm. We've got this big distributed production environment. Um, indoors, we can automate things much less expensively. I know that sounds weird, but it, but it's really true, right? You're condensing your your automation intensity into a smaller space. So yeah, well, we, you're also we, not dealing with 100 degree days and pouring rain and wind and mud for it to get stuck in. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, like I, I look at these guys who are building like strawberry pickers, and I just I feel so sorry sorry for them. It is a, <laughs> that is a really hard problem to solve. Yeah, I've I've got it easy. Right. Like I have it so easy in comparison to the folks that have to figure out how to ruggedize this robot to go drive through a field for 24 hours a day for months on end picking. Like that is a really hard problem. And it's just because weird stuff is going to happen. Right. There's birds are going to land on your machine and poop on it. There's going to be grit blowing into all of your joints constantly. It's sandy. It's wet. It's like you, you name the worst conditions you can imagine and it will experience those conditions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, indoors, we just don't have those, those issues. Right. So it becomes more of a pure robotics problem. Um, obviously like robotics wedded to great plant science and horticulture and understanding the crop, but, um, it's less of this, like, how do I just make my thing survive the natural environment, right? It's already in an artificial environment. It's controlled, it's clean. It's, you know, it's much easier uh, to manage. Um, so back so, to yeah. the process. So, so back to process. Plant. <laughs> yeah. So the, the seed uh, is, it, you know, it goes in, we're tracking it the whole way. That's another great thing about indoor. Like we know where every, every lot of seed goes. We know what every tray does over the course of its life. We know what towers that tray goes into. We know what clamshells that tower goes into. Right. So we're able to kind of track the plants and measure the performance of the plants over time in ways that are pretty awesome. Uh, give us a lot of interesting insights into the process itself. But so we plant, plant our seed, it goes into to the germ chambers, it comes out and goes into seedling production. We'll grow out seedlings and then we take a robot, we pull that plug out and we stick it in a tower. And these are big vertical two-sided towers. Uh, we stand those towers up, hang them on a conveyor line and they move through a grow space with light, with a perfectly controlled environment, nice big wide open rows. And, um, and those towers with those seedlings go in very, very tight. But as they move through the room and as the plants grow, the towers actually spread apart. So we spread those towers apart as the plants grow to make sure they're getting the optimal amount of light, um, you know, airflow, all of kind of the stuff that, that keeps photosynthesis and the growth of that plant at the maximum rate. So um, that's really all, all it is, right? Moves through the room, comes out the other end. We grab it with a laydown robot. We set the, the, the tower down and zip it right through a harvester and, and zip zap, you know, it's through, the tower goes off, gets cleaned and replanted all in one motion. And all of that product goes off on a conveyor line. It goes through, uh, through a sorter and it goes through a cooler and uh, into packaging. It goes right into clamshells. And um, so we hold those clamshells, we test all of our lots, right? So it goes into clamshells and then it's positive release. It goes out onto the trucks and out into the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of the same process that everyone else has, like from a plant growth standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it from the plants perspective, though, the plants just have the ideal growing day every day of the year, right? So there's not a day 
They're always having their best day. That's exactly (laughs) right. So like your best growing day, when you see that relative growth rate, just leap up on all of your plants in the field. We get to, we we have the pleasure of that every single day, right? And we can start to tweak things over time, right? To, To give it perfect spectrum, perfect light, match the genetics with the environment. And it's amazing what, what you can get out as a result. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about that because it, it is all the same processes, but the fact that you have them under one roof um, is, you know, in terms of traceability and uh, providence and kind of like all the stuff that we're trying to do with when we grow outside of knowing where everything is and where it goes and, and the different fail points that can happen when you're moving things from one yeah. point to another, you have so much control because it's all right in one place, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's a risk and an opportunity, right? I mean, from a process, yeah, you could have a total failure, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, again, you know, like we're, we are intensifying agriculture in a lot of ways, right? You think about it, we're, we're growing plants faster. We're growing more of them in smaller spaces and, and pushing them through. Right. And, um, that's great in a lot of ways. I mean, it results in a really healthy plant, a really nutritious plant, a really delicious plant. Um, but it also says, Hey, if you really screw something up, if you lose power, if you mess this system up, then you've, you've got a mess on your hands. Right. And so, uh, it really forces us to invest in redundant systems and engineering things that are, um, you know, more fail proof, uh, more resilient. And, um, ultimately I think it takes us to a really great place as an industry, just in terms of controlling, uh, production and controlling, controlling supply. But, um, but it is, uh, it is both an interesting opportunity as well as a risk. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned, and let's dive into this a little bit more is you, uh, one of the big differentiators of plenty are your vertical towers instead of growing in flatbeds. Like you see pictures of a lot of the other vertical farms, explain to us what those are and what the advantages are and kind of how, how you came to that conclusion, um, to, to grow that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, so the towers represent an architecture, an architectural choice that, that, um, that we've made as a business. And it dates back to my master's and my PhD work. And at the time I was looking at greenhouse production, I was originally interested in working in, in greenhouse production. And um, I just, uh, the, the thing that got me started was thinking about our production metrics. So, you know, like you measure the, the productive, productive capacity of the greenhouse on the square meters of productive plane, right? How many meters of growing plane? How, how, what's the square footage of your greenhouse, right? That's how you measure productivity, but all of the costs were on a volumetric basis, right? So the size of your facility, the amount of covering on that facility, the amount of getting natural gas you burn to heat, the amount of lighting, uh, like all of this stuff tends to have like a very volumetric, uh, uh, way of being costed out. And so I thought that feels like a weird mismatch, right? And uh, that's what got me into my first research, which was like, how can we use space and volume more effectively in these growing environments? How can we build kind of photon traps, if you will, right? How can we use more of the light that's coming in and use it more effectively? And that uh, very quickly led to a realization that, um, you know, the vertical plane, transitioning to the vertical plane, allows us to, to really um, increase the amount of productivity uh, within any given space, within an, any given volume, right? And so then it kind of led to this experiment of saying, well, what's the best way to organize plants in space? 
a very fundamentalist kind of view. Like we, we just assume you have that to forget do, everything, you know, though, to even ask that question, right? <laughs> you, you have to forget everything, you know, right. You have to say, how, how do we organize plants in space? How does nature organize plants in space? Why do plants grow the way plants grow? Like these are all very simple, fundamental questions that I don't think that many people, even in our industry, ask. Um, but it's all about light interception and management and space use. Like how, how, how can we organize plants in space to be most effective? And what I'd seen was um, folks were starting to tinker with the indoor production space, but everyone is doing these flat stacked beds. Mm -hmm. And I started scratching my head because I was just thinking about spatial use, right? Like, well, what's the spatial efficiency of this organization of plants in space? And, you know, when you did, did the numbers, you've got to have access aisles. You have to have, you've got two boundary layers, right? Two layers to manage. Think about, um, think about managing the environment as managing surfaces, right? Airflow past surfaces. Plants need CO2. You need to get rid of the O2. You need to get rid of the humidity and you need to get rid of the temp the, the heat, right? And all of these are generated in the process of growing plants indoors. So if you start to think about it that way, now you've got to manage surfaces. One surface is productive, meaning you make money on the plants, but you don't make money on non-productive surfaces. Mm -hmm. So I started to think about these, these physics problems, if you will, and realized that this is a really inefficient way to do uh, plant organization in space, right? This stacked bed approach. Now that's not to say it's bad and it doesn't work, but very early on, people tended to mistake the ability to grow plants indoors with uh, an actual profitable pathway, right? Um, and what I realized was in order for the industry to go to where it needs to go, which is ultimately to be um, on, on price parity with the field, uh, we needed to rethink how we organize plants in space. So that's where that started. And I started playing with towers and then I realized, oh, light interception efficiency is a major, uh, major problem in the industry, meaning plants have to be spaced at their mature spacing very early on, meaning most of the photons that you're dumping into the space just land on non-photosynthetic surfaces, right? They just bounce off. They just, they go, they're, they turn to heat. Uh, they increase your cost. It's a negative feedback. Loop, yeah, yeah. Right? And so really the fundamental premise became, okay, in a stacked rack system, your productivity is, is roughly equivalent to LED efficiency improvements year on year, right? That ends up being like the fundamental uh, rate uh, predictor. I guess, for yield grain, gain in stock systems. But if we can break that dependency, now we can build systems that are product, productive enough to get us to price parity with the field. And so that was kind of what led to this idea of towers, but towers that's spread apart, right? So there's like a lot of the European greenhouse growers do this already. These are the indexing gutter systems you see in Europe. Mm -hmm. And we basically took that concept, which is a fabulous concept, and some brilliant people back in like the 70s in in Finland and Denmark were pioneering these, these moving gutter techniques. And we took that principle and we stood it up, right? And we just said, how do we do moving gutters vertically, growing on both sides of the gutter, uh, all of the lights in the center, back to back, air distribution in the center, and uh, gives us convective cooling, gives us a lot of airspace air, uh, to manage really carefully our temperature, humidity, VPD, you know, and CO2 and all these other, you know, variables. So that's kind of what led us to the vertical tower architecture. But as you can imagine, uh, building a new architecture is expensive uh, and hard. Um, we looked at it really hard and we said, listen, this is, this is something that's way more productive per square meter. You know, double to triple what a stock producer can grow. 
on a square meter of floor plan basis, right? Uh, it, it unlocks the door to more yield per square meter. So when we're thinking about a square meter of growing plane, it uh, unlocks new yields, right? So if you think about like the field, the field for lettuce is at six grams per square meter per day. Okay, that's roughly what a field will produce in terms of saleable output, right? Mm -hmm. And that's for like head lettuce. So it's not a perfect comparison, but it's as close as we can get. Um, you look at a greenhouse and you're at like 75 to 150, depending on how uh, intensive that greenhouse is, how modern it is, how well managed it is. Like the moving gutter systems of Europe, incredible systems, incredible people. And, um, you know, they're pushing the limit. They're probably like 150 grams per square meter per day um, for like a baby crop, a smaller, smaller crop. You go to like the other indoor producers and they tend to be in like the 200, maybe 300 grams per square meter per day. And this is growing plane again, not, not floor plan, but growing plane. And you look at plenty and we're over 900. Right? Oh my gosh. So with our, with our baby products, we're over 900 today. And our targets are around two kilograms, right? Wow. Two kilograms of yield per square meter of growing plane uh, on a daily basis, 24 hour period. So, um, and that's saleable biomass. That's not stems. That's not roots. That's not all the other stuff. Um, but, but that speaks to the fact that this architecture unlocks yield. It also unlocks new crops. So uh, that's the other thing that I looked at in the space. Like, how do we grow as many different things as possible on the same platform? How do we build a platform as opposed to just building a farm and then having to build an entirely new kind of farm to grow tomatoes, to grow strawberries, to grow eggplant, to grow peppers, to grow all the other things that we want to grow? So, um, so yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this is an expensive, hard thing to do, but it unlocks yield in ways that no one else can touch. Um, because again, they are, they, they have the heat problem, right? They are, their, uh, yield rate is limited by the, uh, by the led efficiency improvement rate. Uh, so we're, we're decoupled from that. That's not our problem. Um, our problem becomes perfect perfection, perfection, perfection. How do we deliver better and better conditions and match those better conditions with better and better genetics? So how many versions have you done of the tower? Uh, lots of versions of the tower. I, I would bet. And yeah. There will be more versions to come. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, yeah. Cause that's, it's such a different idea. And so you started that when you were in school and then you took that into your, um, your first company that then became plenty as well. Is that how the, yeah, that's, that's progressed? right. Took it in my first company and, um, you know, built kind of a farm, uh, technology farm sales business called Brad Egger tech, and then folded that into plenty. Uh, a few year, few years later, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so, what crops do you grow now, and what crops are you working on? You're talking about building a platform to be able to to grow different things. So, where are you now, and what are you expanding to? Yeah, I mean, today we're mostly focused on greens and herbs, right? And I think a lot of folks in the space dove uh, dove into greens and herbs because they thought uh, primary growth, super easy, like. You eat everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone eats a salad. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the, the irony is that, you know, as we've gone deeper on it, greens are easier to optimize. Um, but geez, from a process intensity standpoint, greens are maybe the hardest crop you can grow. Huh. And so, um, it's ironic that, you know, we did it to everyone in the industry thought primary production, super efficient growth. Like this is, you know, LEDs are expensive. Light is expensive. This is how we do it. Right. And, um, now years later, I'm kind of like, oh man, I wish we'd started with strawberries or tomatoes. <laughs> 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 and 
<laughs> those be, greenhouse growers were thinking something good with those tomatoes. Huh? Yeah. They, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Wisdom, right. Um, <laughs> wisdom. So, so anyways, um, you know, we, we're focused on greens and herbs today in terms of our actual commercial production. That being said, you know, we've been breeding tomatoes for a couple of years and, um, you know, we've got some in, insanely productive tomato systems. Um, you know, think thousands of kilograms per square meter per year of floor plan, as opposed to say 45 for something like, you know, cherry tomatoes, two orders of magnitude yield gain. Um, one order of magnitude, you've got a great business, two orders of magnitude. And it's like, holy smokes, uh, this is, this is going to be game changing. Um, strawberries, you know, we've been working on strawberries mm -hmm. and I think, you know, as we look to the future and the future farms, uh, you know, we'll be building farming campuses, right. Where we have greens, tomatoes, strawberries, and then probably a host of additional crops that, that we bring along. Um, and you know, the, the, the cool thing about tomatoes, strawberries, and greens is it's kind of, it, think of it as, as kind of a book, uh, book ending exercise, right. In between greens and in between strawberries, we have almost all of the equipment now integrated into the platform to grow almost anything, any other horticultural crop we want. All right, right. yeah. So almost, almost everything, uh, those two cover the two far extremes of, of the spectrum from a production standpoint. And um, it opens the doors to going very, very fast with, uh, with new crops after that. So- What's uh, the criteria that you, think about then now that you've had the experience with greens and you know that, you know, well, it's not as easy as everyone thought. And then strawberries and, and, um, tomatoes, certainly huge markets for those, especially um, getting strawberries and tomatoes year round that taste really good. Like that's, that's huge in between there. Like what's your criteria? How do you think about what you would pick next? I mean, yeah, um, I mean, there, there are obviously, you know, market considerations. What do people want to eat? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, that's, that's a great first layer. Um, we tend to think about that first layer as like the hero crops of the grocery aisle, right? So yeah, like the top performers in the grocery aisle, like the, the real draws tend to be the berries, strawberries, blueberry, blackberry, raspberry, um, tend to be right after that tomatoes. And then after that greens and in all of those categories, berries already embody it, but in all of those categories, consumers are moving more towards like snackability, convenience, uh, simplicity, right? And, um, so, you know, that, that, that's always like a good, I think, first principle of human behavior, like where are people going? Let's meet them there. Um, the, the next way is like more on the science side, we say, uh, is this crop appropriate for the system and for the things that we have today, or is it appropriate for the things that we'll have later tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now? And then where on that timeline does it land? And you know, the, the easiest way to explain that is what's the cost of the carbon in the product, right? Like if we just want to get really fundamental, how much does it cost to fix the carbon? And then how much of that carbon can we sell in the product? Huh. What's the value of the carbon that we're selling, right? So that's, that's kind of the fundamental calculation. But um, I will say that, uh, you know, I think on the science side, we tend to focus on a few very fundamental things. Can we achieve the growth habit that we want? the harvesting, training, pruning, all of the other human management inputs, can we minimize those with breeding or with hardware uh, that's cleverly designed? And then, um, you know, what's the saturation point of this particular crop? How plastic is it? How easy is it to work with, right? Tomatoes, easy to breed. So, so easy in comparison to other crops. So why wouldn't we, 
right? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, potential for very high saturation points, meaning, you know, if you think about these things as energy systems, right? The, the indoor farm is just an energy system. It's like a battery, right? It's like a car. It's like a grid. It's like any energy system in the world. You put energy into it, you get energy out of it, a different, different form of energy. Um, and all you're doing is trying to minimize the amount of inefficiency along the way. So we put X number of, uh, you know, kilowatts in, we get X number of kilowatts out. We lost so many to heat, to this, to that along the way. And, um, with these systems, if you think about them that way, then the more energy that you can put in to the same size system, uh, the better, right? It's yeah. it's like it's throughput. Yeah. It's industrial throughput. Think of it as a bottling plant. If you can run your bottling plant twice as fast as the guy next door, you can win. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what we're focused on. How do we run our bottling plant faster and faster and faster? Going back to that first principle, how do we divorce ourselves from the energy efficiency curve of LEDs? How do we put more light into the space? How do we not worry about heat and humidity and all the all the negative things that come with it? So um so yeah, we've just built a really fantastic energy system and a core component to that energy system is the plant. How do you, how do you build a plant that saturates at really high levels that you can just pump the energy into and get a, an acceptable amount of energy out of? So how much, um, given that there's so much you can do with the environment around growing plants and in indoor ag, how much does breeding, uh, how important is breeding to your programs? And I know you've got the the program you with Driscoll's and, and they're excellent in breeding, but in some of these other crops, do you think about breeding and are you doing your own or working with partners? How's that going? Yeah. I mean, uh, for most crops, breeding doesn't matter. <laughs> and unfortunately in the industry, most folks, especially like the seed companies and the breeders that are going after things, they don't know what doesn't matter yet. Um, because they're not doing the work. Some crops, it does matter. Um, but the other kind of uh, sad thing is for the crops that it does matter for, it's highly dependent on your system architecture, right? So the kind of tomatoes that I'm growing, someone growing in rafts in a stacked bed system would probably not want to grow. They probably will have to rebuild their system from the ground up with a completely different approach to production, right? Um, so it kind of means there's a lot of targets out there, trait targets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're a breeder thinking, I'm going to jump into the indoor space and make a killing, I would say, wait for 10 years. <laughs> that's a, that's <laughs> because, probably good advice. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, don't, you don't know what matters yet, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. what are your targets? What are your targets? And no one can tell me what their targets are. So until someone can tell me what their targets are, um, you know, I think genetics is best left in the hands of the producers themselves. I think there is a really interesting opportunity to reset the value chain dynamics with indoor farming. Uh, meaning in the field, the farmers get squeezed. That's just all there is to it. I got into this because I got tired of seeing farmers get squeezed. And I think with indoor ag, uh, there's an opportunity for the farmers not to be squeezed. We've got a, We've got a head start on a lot of the folks that occupy other positions in the value chain. And I think there's an opportunity for farmers to own more of that value chain as we look to the future or minimally to balance the value chain better so that it isn't just like one party getting squeezed by parties on either side of them. It ends up being everyone shares the risk equally, right? And we've got a more efficient and more equitable food system from a, from a engagement standpoint, right? So, um, 
all of that to say, uh, some crops breeding is really important. Uh, but I think for probably the next decade, those breeding targets are going to be extremely specific to the producer. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that means ultimately that most of the breeding companies can't afford to play meaningfully for 10 years because, you know, even like some of the fastest growers, there's some great folks in the space doing some incredible work, you know, uh, building a lot of farms really fast, but even the farms that the fastest growers are going to build are going to be a drop in the bucket in comparison to larger industry. So if you think maybe there's an opportunity for a more equitable, uh, more equitable risk distribution in the value chain. Uh, and also it will take a long time for the, the total market share to be meaningful. Um, that's a little less exciting, I think, for most breeders, at least yeah. the way they've done breeding in the past. Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, to your point of just waiting to see like how far can environmental input take us, you know, and, and you're still figuring that out, like just working with light and, and all the other things that you're working with, you're just still figuring out like, how far can we push this from the environment? And I think as, as we move further along and understanding that, and then understanding like what the targets are, then, you know, there may be a way to work together that, that gets to, to traits that are more valuable, but still, I think, as you said, it's going to be more producer specific because what you need is going to be different than what someone else needs. So that's right. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. And, yeah. and to a degree, it becomes market intelligence, right? Like I think um, I see some of these uh, companies that are working with breeders and, I, I know some of the terms of those uh, collaboration agree, you know, agreements and the in-state is that grower uh, pays a lot of money to the seed company for seed for the rest of their lives. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the outcome. Yeah, that's like, true. <laughs> Come on guys, play a little bit hard, play hard to get here. Um, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't give away the value of your, your market intelligence that easily. But, yeah, that's true. Hey, one last question. Um, last time we talked, it's been a while. Compton was just getting going. What's happening with Compton now? And, and uh, what, where are we in that whole project? Compton's going well. I mean, it is a big, uh, complex thing to build. And, um, you know, this is our first time building anything this big and complex. And um, so, yeah, we're learning a lot. It's coming along. And uh, we'll be excited to be putting food out into the world uh, from that Compton facility next year. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time.